a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, my friends. How are you today? Hanging in there. <laughs> Hanging in there. Not going to lie. I'm very sweaty, but I've got a <laughs> beer to drink. So. Oh, perfect. Ooh, sweat. Gross. Cools you off. I wish I, I wish I was sweaty. I wish that was my problem. <laughs> How's the third trimester treating you, Emily? Oh, man. It's kicking my butt. So on the day we are recording, I am just shy of 36 weeks. Wow. And it's insane. And the heartburn is driving me up the wall and the nausea and but it's all exciting because that just means here in like a month's time or so that will not be my experience any longer yes i guess the fact check then from the episode last week is you said by the time the episode aired you would (laughs) your baby would be out but i don't think that's going to be the case i uh i misjudged how far ahead we were so. so we're heartburny we're sweaty I feel good. I'm <laughs> I'm not I'm not suffering these ailments. One of us has but to. Yes, absolutely. What are y'all drinking today? Um to ease my uh sweating over here in Seattle. I am drinking a half IPA, half lemonade situation again, but I I was pretty heavy-handed on the beer, so it's probably like a a third lemonade at best. But I'm drinking a Hazy IPA from Gigantic Brewing in Portland. Mm. And it's pretty good. Nice. It, it's mm. very refreshing with the lemonade. It was very a good choice. Nice. So now you'll have the lemonade beer sweat going on. That'll be, <laughs> that'll be different. <laughs> what about you, Emily? Thanks for what that. What are you drinking? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good image. Thank you. <laughs> I'm drinking because at this point, like, I'm just so fed up with all the symptoms of third trimester pregnancy. So I have like the biggest glass of sweet tea, which is not the best for me. But to be fair, I haven't had caffeine in a very long time. And my doctor did say in moderation, it was okay. So I figured today could be my binge day and we'll just Mm -hmm. go with it. So there you go. Hmm. I've never heard a binge argued as moderation. That's curious. If it's just if it's just today and then I don't have caffeine for like till Thea's born, then it's fine. All really. Right. I consider that to be moderation. All right. We'll give that a shot. I wonder if caffeine can be binged better than alcohol because caffeine does have a half-life. Mm. Oh. Like it stays in your system. That is true. So I don't know. I'm not well, a scientist. I'm just the procurer of such drugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're just the local caffeine dealer. <laughs> I guess we'll I guess we'll find out. Steven, what are you drinking? I am drinking a deliciously cold Citra IPA from Jeremiah Johnson Brewing in Great Falls, Montana. 
Ooh. Jeremiah Johnson might be the best brewery in Montana. Oh. I've never actually been there, but I, their beer is incredible. In fact, it is the best brewery in Montana. Thank you for confirming my own opinions. Um, <laughs> they make uh, my favorite beer called Mountain Man Scotch Ale as well. Yep. And mm-hmm. this Citra IPA is absolutely delicious. It's a lot of like orange. It's absolutely delightful. I'm enjoying it so much. I'm also oh, enjoying puzzling some theology lately. I, I don't know if you saw my tweet earlier today. I gave you guys a hint, but I don't think either of you saw it. No. I am curious to discuss what I'm calling the head theology to heart theology pipeline. Ooh. Okay. Fascinating. I want to start by reading a quote from a book I just finished by Greg Boyd. This is God of the Possible. I just finished. It's kind of a case for open theism and like the possibilities of the future. But he has this like delicious quote in here that I wanted to read to you to get us started. Though some people are clearly more intellectually driven than others, all of us are created to have our minds and our hearts work in sync with each other. Striving to have a plausible theology is necessary because, for many of us, the mind must be thoroughly convinced if the heart is to be thoroughly transformed. End quote. Mm, Okay. How does that sit with you? I have done a lot of, like, growing up in my spiritual life, thinking about the verse... Um, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've always just kind of treated heart, soul, mind, and strength as just different drawers that we can place different kinds of knowledge or experience into. But what I'm thinking, what Greg Boyd got me thinking about was how, especially with a lot of like more heady or philosophical theologies that we've discussed, even recently, like talking about aliens or if we're talking about predeterminism the question usually comes up especially you're asking a lot of the time josh is what does it matter though mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of like that what does it matter or like i'm just thinking about how like the theology of the mind gets translated and like downloaded into the heart to actually be lived out so uh, that's where I'm curious to start. How how have you two thought of the uh, dichotomy between head and heart when it comes to theology? Well, it's funny. I feel like the pendulum can also swing the other way. Like, I think a lot of people, it depends on the context, obviously, but I think a lot of people get raised on like a really emotionally driven church context, or even like maybe you could call it an emotionally driven gospel. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Like, I think that that can be really common at like church camp cry nights or uh, youth groups that are trying to highlight the emotional aspects of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know actually some authors have written about it and have called it like a almost a feminization of Christianity. I'm not sure how much I agree with that term academically, um, but I've heard it referred to that way. And so I feel like because of that context being a lot of people's experiences, I think that there's also a pendulum swing towards more heady theology, especially in like apologetics or um, Mm -hmm. like more philosophical college classes, stuff like that. I think a lot of people end up encountering the swing that way too. But I feel like your angle is really interesting because I feel like you're talking about the other direction, Mm -hmm. right? Well, 
I'm talking about like it's I absolutely love reading a ton of very dense books about theology and of other people thinking about the Christ we're all attempting to follow. And for me, sometimes I feel like I get hung up with maybe I have all the right ideas about God, but sometimes I wonder if it's not translating very well into into my heart to use this language like so that I actually act it out. You know, like, is it being translated mm. from just thought and head into like heart and action is what I'm thinking mm-hmm. about. So, yeah, Josh, I think to answer your to answer your question, I would say, yeah, it's the other the other swing. And I would agree. Um, I think many people's experiences starting from an emotional place. But I see, but I don't know if that's necessarily if we're using Stevens platform for heart meaning like action and intention then i don't know if like emotion would be heart in in this case oh um oh so mm. you would want to delineate further between maybe heart and emotion and like body and action yeah oh okay well plus that's kind of that's very reminiscent of the shema in deuteronomy right like mm-hmm. you should love the lord your god with your heart soul and mind yeah. Right. I mean, I know there's like different translations and interpretations there, but I feel like that <laughs> dividing it even further just reminds me of that. Yeah. So that's kind of right. Funny. And that's what I was thinking. How does that make you feel, Stephen, if we were to to do that? Which verse or which translation gives us strength as well, where it's heart, soul, mind, and strength? On it. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question because I feel like I've heard that before. Because I, I grew up saying and strength at the end. And I always thought about it as like, strength represents like the bodily knowledge or action of loving the Lord your God. Whereas the mind feels pretty self-explanatory. I always get hung up with heart and soul though. And I always kind of wonder if the addition of soul, particularly in the new Testament, when like new Testament writers are writing about it, I always wonder if that is kind of just borrowing some like Platonist philosophy about the soul there's a really good uh, Bible project video that dives into like a really distilled explanation of what types of words the biblical authors are using when they use words that we translate as soul. Like there's two mm-hmm. really specific ones. One of them is nefesh. I believe that one's the Hebrew word. I don't remember which Greek word is used typically, but their word study videos on it are really, really interesting, I think. They're, I think they're really good explanations. They point out that on the whole, those words that we translate as soul are more indicative of like entire being. Mm, okay. More of an all encompassing thing instead of just another part. Nefesh is the Greek word. Oh, nefesh is the Greek word. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting. In my defense, I don't speak either language. <laughs> Fair enough. You're forgiven. I'll give it's that to okay. you. Um, Mark's scripture is the one that we typically find heart soul mind and strength matthew is heart soul and mind oh interesting so it's not even a translation it's just books of the bible right Stephen, what is it that inspires you or interests you particularly about the differences between people being very head focused or emotion focused or action focused when it comes to their christianity or even their antithesis of christianity because I find that most, most atheists or agnostics I've encountered 
typically give one of those reasons for not identifying as Christian. Like either it's a mental ascent thing and they don't think the the head parts match up. Like I feel like that's the part that stood out to me about Greg Boyd's quote there was like there needs to be like some sort of plausibility built in mm-hmm. or accepted. Like some mm-hmm. amount of reasonableness needs to be there. So I feel like some people I've heard some people give those explanations for reasons that they don't want to identify with Christianity anymore. But then there's also the stereotypical, well, Christians aren't doing what they say. I, and I think that's the one that bothers me the most. Like I was, mm. I was recently reading Luke 11, which has the passage where Jesus is basically proclaiming woe, woes against the Pharisees and lawyers mm. of the time. And um, he has this whole thing against the, the Pharisees. Like you're doing all the right things. You're tithing all the mints and ruse and all of manners of herbs and uh, passed by justice and the love of God. Um, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So basically like you're doing part of it, but you're not getting the point. And I think I've spoken of that before on the podcast where it's like, uh, like in the case of lust, you know, Jesus is saying like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say like to look on a woman with lust is to commit adultery with her in your heart. And it's the, in your heart part. Mm -hmm. That's for me, it's like, it's about the motivation and it's about like the actual transformation that's happening at a deeper level. I don't know. Maybe I just have a conception of like the mind is more surface and the heart is like deeper inside a person. Mm. I mean, I feel like the same could be said the other direction too. Like I think that a lot of people criticize emotions as surface level and then prioritize something that's like philosophical or more heady, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. as being the deeper truths. I've picked up that in Christianity, I think, before. Like people will criticize you for like only being emotional about Jesus, wow. but you not actually knowing what you believe. It's that's you know it's what I mean? so interesting to me that you and I are taking this like the complete like we're taking the <laughs> complete yeah. different directions. That's so fun. Yeah. Emily, was it like are you in the middle somewhere or do you lean either way? Is it like I I feel like my cop out answer well no, I'm gonna stand by it. I really think it's situational. Oh, okay. Well, then I feel like my personal situation is that it's easy for me to get caught up in the theologies of the head and I do not allow them mm -hmm. to transform my heart in a meaningful way so that I begin to act out what I simply know in my head. Yeah. So maybe maybe I'm just like wanting you guys to help me uh, remove some blockage today. (laughs) Um, Us nines. <laughs> I, I am curious, Emily, will you look up the Greek for me of Luke 11, verse 52? Because what I'm reading in yeah. English is, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in you hindered. And I want to know what word they're using for knowledge. Because um, I've discovered recently, reading Romans as well, the difference in the Greek between gnosis and epinosis. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially what I'm getting at is like gnosis is kind of the Greek way of pointing to mind knowledge, whereas epinosis is more about feeling and the heart in Christian mm-hmm. imagery. So I'm curious to know what Luke says. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that word before. Huh. Yep. It's it's gnosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even in Luke, when he's proclaiming woes to the lawyers, he's saying you're taking away even the head knowledge and hindering others yep. from gaining the same thing which i appreciate about what greg boyd is saying is he's saying for some of us who are like intellectually driven in this way 
and this is why it's re- resonating with me this direction, Josh, and maybe it's maybe it's striking you the opposite way is like he's saying like some of us need to be intellectually convinced in our minds before it starts transforming our hearts, you know. I guess can we just define or can we try to define what we mean by heart when we're we're talking in Christian imagery? This has to have been a conversation through the centuries. I would hope. Yeah. I mean, what comes up for you when you start talking about matters of the heart? I'm coming back to the heart. <laughs> I feel like so many Christians use the word heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just like so ambiguous sometimes. Because you're right. Like some people mean it to mean emotion. Some people mean it more in like an intuition, street smart yeah. kind of sense. Yeah. But it always seems paired up with like this relational language. It's tricky because like the Bible doesn't really use this language a ton, except in that one verse, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, whatever. But like, I bet our modern conception of what the heart entails is pretty different from the way a second century Jew would have conceived Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. The one thing that you're reminding me of too, is that I think the heart, the word heart is used really commonly today as like a synonym for core. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. Um, like if you're trying to get to the heart of a matter or um, the heart of a plant, like we know that plants don't have a heart, but like we still call it the heart of an artichoke sometimes, like the, yeah. the middle part that everything comes from. Um, what do you, who do you think is the most emotional Christian? Like if there's a stereotype of today's Christian. Oh. Now, what it, do you like, mean by, I feel like, what, what do you mean by emotional? Well, I've just been like thinking about this in the back of my head this whole time because we keep talking about like the extremes, like someone who's just extremely intellectual, which I know who I'm thinking of, <laughs> like and doesn't give much credence to like other mm-hmm. parts of faith. But what would be the extreme for On someone who's end? just like hyper into their heart, quote unquote? Oh, boy. Like, is it the Pentecostal? Is it the... It's probably not the Frozen Chosen. <laughs> I forgot the phrase Frozen Chosen existed until now. That's yeah. such a yeah, gift. No. <laughs> <laughs> or do you not see someone who is like fully into, like if for lack of a better word, like heart theology, do you not see it as someone who's hyper emotional? Or do you see, do you think of more like someone who is more like all encompassing, like loving their faith and Christianity with like their whole being and their whole Mm. self. Is that what you think of? I'm just like still trying to further distinguish those two potentially different options in my head. Like what it means to be more head like or heart like. I like the former of the two that you just said. And I would say Pentecostal would probably be the most emotional, truly. Mm Mm-hmm. Stephen, you keep making me also think of this question that I've had written down for a while. And so I think I'm going to bring it up. Um, Do you think, either of you, that you can actually believe in something or believe that something is true without participating in it? Like speaking in tongues or God healing or God even interacting in our universe or like, can Mm. you actually mentally assent to something intellectually without it impacting your participation in something is there uh, hmm 
can we acknowledge something? Oh, maybe. What are you thinking of? Also, like speaking in tongues, like I can acknowledge that that is or could be someone's experience or that they that's a deep part of their spirituality. But I don't have to. Mm. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, like you can uh, acknowledge a phenomenon, but not Mm -hmm. participate in it yourself. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Because I don't have to believe in it, but it doesn't negate someone else's belief in it. I can acknowledge it. Okay, so then what is belief then? Is Does belief just boil down to experience? Can I muddy the waters too and ask whether... Yes. Oh, please do. Please muddy the waters some more. Absolutely. <laughs> is, is what we're talking about as belief a head thing or a heart thing or, or uh. both? My buddy always likes to say that faith equals belief plus action plus confidence. And he huh. like came up with that distillation. He, he has some experience reading some Greek because like the words belief and faith are not synonyms, even though they like get mm-hmm. used as synonyms. Yeah. And it's really a simplified definition, but I like that because it, in, it assumes that you are somehow acting and you're not just mentally assenting or acknowledging the presence of something. It means that you are impacted and there's some action associated with it. And you're, maybe the belief is more like in the confidence. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I think that that's a really practical difference, even if you could like expand on that more. Because certainly lots of people have written about belief and faith and doubt and how they're related. But I like the connection that you can like go beyond belief in a way that you keep acting or you change how you're acting. And mm. maybe, maybe like what we were just talking about a second ago about like acknowledging phenomenons, maybe that could be considered more of like a, just a baseline belief. Hmm. Like I can acknowledge that something's happening or to someone or that someone's doing something, but that doesn't necessarily affect how I keep going forward into something. Right. So it's almost like there's tears. I don't really like that word, but, but maybe it is though. That's maybe that's, that is maybe what I'm trying to put my finger on is like there, there feels like there is to me a tear between I mentally believe something. Is it like belief is happening in my head, but trust and faith is happening in my heart. And like somehow it matures into that, like trust and faith in the heart after it's like been germinated in the head for a while. I don't know. That's what I'm curious Mm. about. Cause it around the, the context of this verse, the whole book is about, open theism and like an open view of the future and the possibilities thereof. And a huge crux of his argument becomes if therefore God is open to a a wealth of future possibilities, then we actually do have a duty to pray as if it matters because we believe that like there's a possible future in which we didn't influence the world or influence God through prayer. So like Mm. in an open view, something I'm learning is that prayer actually does something. Whereas my entire life growing up very reformed Calvinist, like closeted Baptist, I always thought prayer, I was like, what's the point of prayer if everything is already like set in stone and we already have the elect and somehow now Mm. it's just my job to tell the elect that they're elect, you know? Whereas now I have a mental belief 
that prayer probably matters more than I've ever given it the credit for, but I'm not acting that out yet. I'm not praying as if my prayers do something to the world and in partnership with God. Mm. Or there's like the person who is just so stereotypical who will repeat that if you're not telling people they're going to hell, then you don't actually believe it. Well, I don't believe people are going Which to hell. Like, so. <laughs> well, no, I know that. But like, I, but like you, you'll hear that from like both sides. Like mm-hmm. you'll oh. hear that from people who believe that people are going to hell, but you'll also hear that from people who don't believe people are going to hell. Yeah. And there's definitely this, um, this line in the sand that gets drawn, I think, whether it's with religious or non-religious people, that if you say you believe something, but you're not, somehow your actions don't seem affected by it, then your belief in that thing is kind of called into question. Right. But I'm not convinced it always should yeah. be either. Well, but maybe that's what, I think that's actually exactly what I'm trying to puzzle out. Because it's like, to me, it's the, it's the, orthodoxy to orthopraxy pipeline Mm -hmm. as well, right? I feel like that's a good stand-in for head theology (laughs) to heart theology. It's like something is being translated from just either mental belief, mental assent. Like it makes sense according to reason in my head and something transforms that into it matters so much that I'm actually going to like integrate it into the core of me, you know, to use that word from you, Josh, like, Mm-hmm. If it I've, if I choose to like download that into the core of me, then it should change the way I act. I think. What do you think is inhibiting you from not acting on? Hmm. Like what? What is blocking the pipeline? Maybe it's just fear, <laughs> or <laughs> in in the case of this isn't a test, well, Stephen. It's no. Okay. In the case of my prayer life, um, you know, like at twenty six years old. Like maybe there's a sense of guilt coming up. I'm feeling where it's like, man, if prayers mattered all along, but I haven't prayed as if it mattered for 26 years, like what could have, I don't know. It's, it's almost like the, what could have been phenomenon, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which even I admit is not a healthy way of going through the world. Hmm. Here's a big one. Do you think someone can participate in Christianity, but not believe in Christianity. Like Greg Boyd brought up the plausibility or like William Lane Craig talks about reasonable faith. And like, as fun as it is to like talk about which religions are not true or like Mm. which religions make clearly false claims about reality. At a certain point you have to like, I think take someone's faith tradition at faith value. (laughs) Like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good one. several like obviously each tradition is trying to get at something regardless of whatever historical claims it's making and do you think someone can participate in that faith tradition without believing or mentally assenting to some of the traditional historical claims of that faith mm. do all christians need to believe mary was a virgin or that jesus physically rose from the dead i personally don't think so I would agree. But I don't know how to back that up either. Like, that's just my personal belief, I think. (laughs) Well, I think part of me wants to say that it's okay that you can't back it up because sometimes it's not about backing it up. I think we get caught up in this idea that we have to 
rebuttal or be prepared and have like our flashcards ready to go, like it's speech, drama and debate mm. and be prepared for every possible outcome that the other person's going to dish out. But the whole point of faith is that we're learning and experiencing. And so there are things that are going to change and evolve. And I think that's one of them. I think that idea is one of them. And so what you can't back it up, that doesn't mean it's any less than like, do you feel bad that you can't back it up? A little bit. Why? I mean, the uh, the 19 year old deep inside of me who is obsessed with apologetics and proving Christianity definitely can acknowledge that there is a lot of weight and importance to being able to support your own claims. But I also agree that like not everything needs to be speech and debate. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. It is hard to tell where to draw the line, though, sometimes, I think. Because obviously, I think this is a problem that's really rampant in Christianity. Like, not only do I think a lot of people are really quick to point fingers and say, well, like, you're not a real Christian because you believe X, Y, and Z, or you don't believe X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I do. And to be honest, I think that's really dangerous so socially. <laughs> oh, what? And gatekeeping is I don't dangerous? No. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to say a few thank yous. Then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com slash ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at RavelPod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People. I'll tell you my little pitch of it. It's about a man who is a dentist who decides to make bootleg toothpaste <laughs> that turns you into a gum monster. And Whoa. he's like the Michelin man, but made of <laughs> gums. So, <laughs> gums, and not like gum. It's weird that we we call that human skin gums, right? And we chew gum. Yeah. That, yeah. What the that, feels, that feels like an oversight, doesn't it? <laughs> I agree. You should call that something else. We need to have a meeting. <laughs> and now back to the conversation. What do you think, Josh? Do you think it's possible to participate? Well, I guess you already answered that. You said yes. Yeah, I think so. Like a lot of Christians, especially including Paul, like the earliest propagator of Christianity, mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of Christians love the phrasing of transformation of oneself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like regardless of uh, theological background, I feel like a lot of people do use that phrase, like heart transformation or mm -hmm. like the death of oneself being reborn, being born again, like lots of people talk about stuff like that yeah. when it comes to being a Christian. And I think on some level, you can be transformed by a faith tradition and be inspired by the meat and spit out the bones still. Mm -hmm. Like, even if you don't identify with a faith tradition anymore, like that doesn't mean you weren't transformed by it. Yeah. 
And I feel like that's uh, taken for granted. Like not a lot of people talk about that, at least that I'm listening to. I wish people would talk about it more. Do you think that can cause potential harm? What? Well, maybe not harm per se, but how do you how do you think that impacts people who, you know, chew the meat and keep the bone? Let's just keep that imagery going. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I think I see what you're asking. Like, what risks could there be mm-hmm. if you think you can only participate in something and still, but but as a requirement, you have to mentally assent to all the things. Right. Or eventually get to mentally assenting to all the things. You know, because like- That too, I've, yeah. I've heard that framing in previous church contexts where they say like, you don't need to believe to belong, but of course the goal of the church is to get you to believe it too. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Every church has a statement of faith, even the KKK. That's yes. true. Yeah. Uh, I think the one of the biggest risks on an individual level, which is I think one of the more important ones in this discussion, is that I think it can risk creating an insane amount of cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. And not only do I think that it tears apart families sometimes, but I think it can tear apart good organizations who are doing good work in their communities when mm. the mental assent and belief statements are the heart <laughs> of the matter. <laughs> like if that's all it's about, I think it can cause really incredible stress on people. Are there any examples? I don't want to like intentionally call out like groups or people, but I'm just wondering for example's sake, is there something that comes to mind that we can kind of rationale or discuss? Well, um, every church split ever. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great that's, answer. <laughs> that's a decent one. Even the one you're experiencing now, Emily, between Global Methodist mm-hmm. and United Methodist, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a mental yep. ascent question to... LGBTQ community and you know, one side demands that you remain traditional and one side I don't I don't want to say that United Methodists are necessarily like demanding that you become affirming but they're at least open to it right yeah the other example I have is like a church that basically says like you can't be a volunteer or staff member until you are able to sign like this statement of faith. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why I didn't become a member at my last church because that was a requirement. And that's probably why I will never serve on a worship team ever again. Um, <laughs> unless I find a church that's like really groovy, but well, to be honest, I don't know if I would feel comfortable signing a statement of faith, even if I agreed with it all at this point. Right. Because uh, there is that like intellectual humility to say like this might be different in two years. Who am I to sign my like legal signature mm-hmm. to this thing and be like, yes, put me in, coach? That's how I feel at least. Like right. that's that's my exact experience. Is I signed the thing four years ago, and now if I go back to that church, they would not have me on the team because I would like I would look at the document and be like, I don't believe half this stuff. Hmm. Have you guys been paying attention at all to any of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention stuff that was going on? Oh my God, yes. Uh, um, did you? Unfortunately. Uh, sorry. I've been trying to like stay out of it, but my Twitter feed, it turns out, cares about it. So I've been like picking up on a couple things. Yes. Um, one of the things that happened that was semi controversial was this church. I actually don't remember whose church it was, but I think it was the, the new president of the SBC. 
Okay. But anyway, someone, someone prominence church changed their belief statement after he was elected within the convention. Oh. But it was changed to like, quote unquote, better reflect the theology of the convention. And it was just like a wording thing. Like it was really semantic-y, but they justified it as like, well, we were accidentally endorsing a first century heresy about the Trinity or something. But it was just because of the, like, they worded it in a really simply put way and not like a super intellectual theological way that is mm. obviously correct because it's intellectualized, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's super fascinating. Like they obviously care a crap ton about wording it super correctly because they believe that that is the most correct version. And as much as I think objective truth exists, even about God, I'm still not convinced we can discover it or fully put words to it. And if we can't fully put words on it, then is the type of knowledge that like gets to experience it in its totality without the intellectual version of it. Is that what we're describing when we say like epinosis or heart knowledge? Or heart theology. Mm-hmm. Like, well, it's like the Apollo. I'm using this phrase a lot, but I really like it. It's a fun Twitter joke. But like, is it the apologetics to like mysticism pipeline now? No, I think so. I was just going to bring that up. I think that that's exactly why so many people are talking about being a Christian mystic or like reading the Christian mm-hmm. church father mystics. Or right. I think that that is also a contributing factor to the amount of people that seek after the charismatic Pentecostal experience. Like, yeah. after being kind of in that world for a couple years, that's totally what I see it as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, people want to experience God more yeah. often after only talking about thinking about God. Because I think after some time talking about it just doesn't, it doesn't do enough. And so they want to experience. Do you think... Okay, so coming back to Jesus's basic argument in like adultery to lust and uh, murder to anger, is it a question of motivation then between heart theology and head theology? Like, is it possible to act out the fruits of the spirit with only head theology? Like, I guess I'm saying is is heart another stand-in for the a word like motivation or inspiration? so that we act out of a place of the fruits of the spirit instead of just trying to like behave as if we have the fruits of the spirit. Mm. Cause that's how I've heard even the, the story of the, uh, the unyielding fig tree that Jesus gets angry at and curses is basically like it's broadcasting that it has the fruit. And then he approaches the tree because he's hungry and it doesn't have the fruit. And that's what makes him, especially angry is because there's hypocrisy there. And I feel like that's a lot of the critique of the Pharisees as well is that hypocrisy between like you idiots, you're washing the outside of the cup, but you're drinking from like cups that have scooped piles of or like your white, Mm -hmm. your whitewashed Mm -hmm. tunes, right? Like there's something about the heart that is like an inspiration and motivation so that the fruits of the spirit grow out of that. But can we just act as if we have those. Josh, I guess this whole question is basically telling you that I don't believe that someone can participate without the, the motivation or believing in it, you know? I th- mm. That's what it feels like <laughs> now that I'm asking it. I think I think you can participate, but it's whether or not it's authentically participating. 
like whether you're intentionally participating. Because I think we're capable of acting through the motions of anything every day. Oh, yeah. But whether but whether or not we intentionally want to is another. Well, yeah, because I guess that's that's a turn of phrase that exists for us. Like, we'll say like, well, my heart just wasn't in it, but I did it Mm -hmm. anyway, you know? Yeah. So is 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 the participation without your heart being in it? Is that valuable at all? Or is that just like putting on a front? I think it can be valuable, but I don't think it's sustainable. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I can think of so many examples off the top of my head. Like my first example is like being an employee at somewhere you don't really care about or like work you don't care about doing or like a place you're burnt out on. But then my next thought is like someone in vocational ministry, like the pastor mm. who is a pastor at a church who doesn't agree with half of the belief statement. Yeah. But he like has to keep performing the work because it's his job. Right. And he has to keep participating in the actions of his vocational ministry despite not believing in some of the requirements. Sure. And the reasoning behind it. I think it's a super applicable and question. Are we pointing at that is burnout inevitable because now he's running on a consumable fuel whereas, you know, cuz like I I've heard people do sermons to inspire the church basically saying like you notice that the burning bush didn't actually burn up because like there was something else that was burning it wasn't consuming the bush or even asking the bush to be consumed right it was the spirit of god the motivation the, the heart of jesus right mm-hmm. if it's motivating you enough you will never experience burnout in ministry which i think is wrong Hold up. Have you actually fart. heard someone say that? Yes. Fart. Yes. What? People very fart, close fart. to me have said that. What? Yeah. <sighs> like, basically, I've heard what? the argument. Like, What insane reasoning is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, I've heard people this say. This is the freaking Bible reading that ticks me off the most. Like, <laughs> that is not an interpretation at all. Like, that is just reading something into it that is not even there. Like. Oh my gosh, I can't even think of an example that is even close to that. Like, Jesus, when he rode into town on the donkey, he did it because his feet don't touch the ground. And when you follow Jesus, your feet don't touch the ground because you're you're on God's donkey. Like, I, that's just ridiculous. Like... People need to stop doing that. <laughs> I'm dying over here. <laughs> Emily, I hope you never do that. It's quite the exegesis, isn't it? I think I have my next sermon. No, just kidding. But it is just kidding. I, that is the argument I've heard is that like you you won't experience burnout if it's truly what? a belief of the heart that sustains you beyond like consuming you. Well then I'm I guess sorry, I'm but... screwed. So am I. Yeah, that is the most toxic of an explanation for being in ministry that I've ever heard. And I think if we're honest, like we all think that's garbage, but it's still used as like the Christian Ted talk, like rah, rah parade um, to get us to do more, to grow the numbers, to grow the tithes. (sighs) My sermon two weeks ago, um, I had to do a video recording of it because I was officiating a wedding in Sioux Falls. Um, And my sermon (laughs) literally was like, burnout's legit. Burnout is real. Do not negate it. Do not try to dumb it down. Do not try to sweep it under the rug. Like, know that it's a real experience and that's okay. And I basically, like, 
oh, this is so, this is so frustrating. Mm. I have angina now. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Uh, heart pain, you know, angina, you know, uh, chest pain. Never heard that word. Okay. Uh, you're missing out. Stephen, do you think that Christianity is even meant to inspire or motivate? Oh. Meant to or does inherently? Like, is the reason that pastors stereotypically give really bad sermons like that to motivate people, regardless of being in ministry or like everyday life? No. Sorry, Emily. I'm just pretending like you're not here. Like, is the reason that people have to give those sermons because Christianity is not inherently inspiring? Or is it because Christianity is inspiring and they're trying to translate that to people? Oh, yeah. Regardless I, of how good they I are. I think at it's it. a lost in translation issue. I think a generous reading, not a generous, but like, I think a good reading of Paul would be that he was inspired by a mystical you know, spiritual moment he had on the road, right. That completely turned him around from persecution to being like the greatest champion and preacher for the rest of his life. And like, there was something in it that inspired him. It's, it's a very upside down inspiration though, according to like new creation dynamics that insist that we make ourselves last and like humble ourselves. Mm. Right. It like, it's not inherently inspiring to give up your life for those you love unless it is. I don't know. Like the inspiration I feel from Christianity and from the gospel is like the feeling I get in that one scene of Les Mis where the priest is like, I actually gave him all that stuff and here's the candlesticks also. Right. Mm. But it's the lost in translation piece that becomes like the inspiration you can get on like a five minute YouTube video from like a workout guru with shredded pecs or whatever, you know, like I, I really do think it's just like a shallow lost in translation accident that it's like well we need to do stuff that appeals to unchurched people and Mm. you know maybe that's it what do you think josh i don't know like i feel inspired by my christian upbringing despite some belief migration in the last couple years Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or even like not even necessarily changing or delineating from my previously held beliefs but also like a like a de-emphasizing of certain beliefs. Like I used to believe that some things were way more important and now I maybe don't completely throw those out, but I don't necessarily emphasize them. Like, sure. like for instance, I still feel really inspired by Jesus's message. I'm not a first century Jew that heard it originally and like understood all of the nuances that he was talking about with the law and the prophets mm. and mm-hmm. him relating to the father. And like, I don't understand all of those things, even though I kind of know some of the things he was getting at. But at the end of the day, I still feel really inspired by the way he talks about loving your neighbor means to love God and that I can pursue that as a human and feel inspired by that and not feel like I have everything figured out mentally ascent wise. But I'm not convinced that the point of Christianity or Jesus's message was to inspire. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, Jesus obviously wasn't just, like, a motivational speaker. Like, I yeah. I do kind of hate it when people pull the, well, Jesus was obviously a good teacher card. Because, like, obviously towards the end, not very many people thought that. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. he was the first, well, not the first, but, like, he was the first Christian martyr burned at the stake, you know? Like, so many other people have been. A lot of the Jewish prophets were mm-hmm. killed because people hated them. 
<laughs> yeah. Like Jesus was actually a pretty hated teacher <laughs> by the end. Yeah. But what he did do was inspire, you know, the, the world with a vision of like new creation and kingdom of God dynamics on the world. A world that was very, very sick of massive top-down empire and mankind claiming that they were God-kind, as Caesar did. Mm. Like, preaching a new way, instead of just ascending the ladders of wealth and power, he was saying, why don't you, why don't you, almost like, why don't you, like, join me in the descent on humility and making myself poor? Mm. I do feel like that's inspirational, but it's inspirational in a very counterintuitive way. And maybe we're using the word inspirational differently according to what that vision was versus like what's considered inspirational quotes in 2021. Hmm. What do you do with, because I, I, I like to hope through my journaling process and stuff that I'm at least self-aware enough to recognize that maybe this question is on my mind and on my heart he he um because maybe i'm just experiencing a season of dryness in my experience of god Mm. maybe quite honestly that's that's the root of this is like i haven't experienced like a, a true presence i think that's i think that's important to share though because i i just think of how many other people are in a similar boat as you Stephen, and trying to put the pieces together of mind and heart it's hard enough as it is i think to do that but when you are experiencing a sort of dryness you know or a, a lack of presence or whatever then it makes it even more difficult and that's a reality that I think we need to be more open to discussing and and feeling comfortable talking about. Because I feel like we don't want to share that we are experiencing that because mm. of fear of people viewing us as not truly being Christian. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like one of my greatest temptations in a season like this, kind of like, it's easy for me to start thinking that I'm doing something wrong you know like i'm I'm playing all the arguments mm-hmm. of job's friends in my head like you must have done something wrong if god withdrew from you or if you're not mm-hmm. experiencing like a vibrant spiritual life right now i think that's one of my greater temptations is to say like yeah i must be doing something wrong or i must have done something but at other times even on this podcast i've uh i've described the beauty in what i see Richard Rohr describes in the divine dances, like in every dance, there's a withdrawing stage, right? Yeah. And now it takes me to step with my dancing partner into the withdrawal and I make the movement forward in order to like rejoin them in the waltz. Mm-hmm. I think we have to give ourselves permission to not enjoy it by any means, but to experience these, these seasons and these moments because we are human. Here's a question for you two then, kind of in the spirit of last episode where we ended with like discussing our our favorite modes of self-care. Are there particular practices or or things you fall you like to fall back on in like a moment of faith when you are having like a a, a dry and 
seemingly vacant season with God? Hmm. That's a hard one because I think that my sense of like vacancy or dryness has radically shifted the last couple of years. Oh, mm. same. Like more. for instance, like for instance, I used to be of the opinion that a daily devotional writing or scripture reading practice was an essential part of what it means to be a Christian and follow in Jesus' footsteps, and therefore would lead to less spiritual dryness and more spiritual. Uh, Moist, sure. Moisture. Yeah, I don't. I don't I like the opposite of spiritual dryness. <laughs> <laughs> the metaphor um, breaks but down. Like, not only do I find that that daily practice doesn't work well for me anymore, and also when I like try to do it regularly and I fail at it, just like makes me feel worse about myself anyway. Mm. But I also happen to believe now that I don't think those are essential. Like, I don't think those are spiritual requirements to be a Christian. I don't think they're terrible ideas. Like, obviously, people benefit <laughs> from things like that. But, like, thousands and millions of Christians have been Christians without doing those. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Throughout history. So, yeah. I feel like that broke down for me a little while back. So, like, not only would I define, like, feeling absent from God or, like, feeling spiritually dry differently now than I would a couple years ago. Mm. But I'm not necessarily sure I have any fixes that seem faith driven. Like for instance, the first one that comes to mind is like, I think that my go-to is to give of myself to someone else. That's a very nine uh, thing to say. Is it? I guess <laughs> yeah. so. Uh, yeah. Whether it's in the form of money or whether it's in the form of listening or if it's in the form of a compliment. Mm-hmm. A really great example is like sometimes at work I'm, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. Like I feel less authentic. I feel less intentional. I'm literally going through the performance of taking someone's order, making them a drink, like doing the bare basics, not being rude, but like not feeling much more than mm-hmm. barely sufficient in myself. Mm. And as soon as I notice it in myself, I like make a point to to break the routine and break the script and give someone a compliment or like make a joke. Those things are usually outward focused, but to be honest, most of the time I do it for me. Like I, today, I told someone I liked their matching dress and mask. It did look great, but in the moment, I was like not feeling great. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's my go-to usually. Mm. And to me, it doesn't feel um, spiritual or faith-like, but it totally helps me. Then that's okay. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I feel like I've heard that from preachers in the past too. Like if you're not feeling it, go I don't know. I don't want to cheapen it and say like you just told me something I've heard before. But something <laughs> no, I've about, totally stolen so, the idea. Well, something about like stepping outside of yourself and not you know, wallowing in like woe is me, you know, God isn't here and just and, and going and doing something for someone else, an act of service or even, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, just, just breaking out of that mindset that it has to be all about me right now. And I'm like, where are you, God? You know? Mm. Yeah. What about you, Emily? I, uh, very similar to Josh, actually, like pretty much. And I think that's where I made, that's why I said it's a nine thing. Cause that's such, that's such a reality for me. And we're both nine. So I, I feel like it's fitting a part of me. Also, though, 
gives myself permission to just completely stop, like to stop what I'm doing, to stop, you know, not to say to quit thinking about it or to, you know, but just to act like to physically stop and just be present with my body, like present with myself. And I found that especially true during pregnancy. Mm. Um, working and kind of going through the motions of work because I'm just tired or there's just a lot happening in the life of the church and it almost feels just routine, especially as I approach maternity leave. And there are times where I just give myself permission to say, I'm going to focus on something else about me and that's okay. Mm. Um, And so like if I feel Thea kicking or you know, my heartburn or whatever the case may be, it's giving myself permission to say, I'm allowed to still focus on me, but something else about me rather than this other thing that's going on. And I'm grateful for that because it's allowing me to see that there is more to me and more going on around me than just this thing that I'm so focused on. And that like, it's going to go away at some point and it may not go away right away Mm. it can still be there and that's okay because there's something else going on that may also go away that may not last forever and so being present to that i find that to be a gift so does that answer your question yeah i think it does i think i grew up with a phrase i don't know if either of you have heard this but uh i used to be told like even on days that you can't believe your beliefs, you should at least pray your prayers. Mm. Hmm. And that's, it's actually been something I've, I've been trying to be really intentional about recently because of this sense of withdrawal that I'm feeling. It's like, you know, I've, I've built a little practice out of praying with my homemade prayer beads and like doing a rosary or doing the, the Anglican version of it. Um, with their own bead pattern. It's just, it's something where it's like, it's kind of adopting my, my old practice of straight up like mindfulness meditation, but pairing it with real traditional prayers. And I guess it does kind of sound like at least go through the motions for now until your heart is back in it, which I feel like brings Mm -hmm. us full circle, right? Like, I guess it just has to be in my head for now until my heart, like, gets into gear again. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's been my practice lately is kind of doing a Protestant version of the rosary and just taking silent time like that in the evenings. Is it the most Protestant thing ever to make a Protestant rosary? To not sign a belief statement? Oh, oh, um, oh. I feel like there's something very Protestanty to me about that. <laughs> Like literally protesting against belief or actually against action too. Like mm, yeah. plenty sure. of Protestants have been upset about the bad actions of other Christians. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just kind of like left with that question now as you were finished talking. Is that the healthiest way of being, you think? Like that inherent uh, Protestant move? Maybe. In that case, I'm not the best Christian, but man, am I a fantastic Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do you you feel like we're just making Protestant and contrarian synonyms when we talk about it that way? Mm. 
not just contrarian, but like a productive contrarian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Productive contrarian. I like that. I'm not just throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, I don't agree with 60% of Christianity. Therefore, I'm just going to like leave everything. Mm -hmm. There's the part of me that like, there's like a part of me that wants to be the thorn in the flesh that's like. So you're saying. Yeah, I think 60% of this is bad and I want to see it thrown out and I want to see the good stuff thrive. Okay, so you're saying Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation was the original deconstruction movement. Uh, yeah, I guess for lack of a better term. I mean, he was the original Protestant, right? Kind of like, though, right? Yeah. But I don't know. It's an interesting comparison, but I don't think the majority of people who identify with the word deconstruction see themselves as only protesting or advocating for change. Like a lot mm. of people are just straight up leaving yeah. and also identifying with the word deconstruction. But then I think you're right. There's also groups of people who are staying and identify with that word. And yeah. are clearly like protesting for mm. like productive change. Yeah, that's fair. So I don't know. I, I see the connection you're making, but I think it depends. Cool. Well, any any final thoughts on head theology and heart theology? It's a lot to think about. <laughs> um, well, and a lot one... to feel. Hey. Uh, yes. I think one of the things that I just, you know, I kind of, I touched on it here not too long ago. But it's important is just giving yourself permission to say, yeah, it's okay if, I, if I'm stuck in my head for a little bit or, yeah, I'm stuck in my heart for a little bit. There's no one clear way to live and to thrive. And there's no clear way to be in the seasons of dryness and, you know, vacancy. And that's just a reality of life that we have to be comfortable with. And so giving ourselves permission to just say it's okay and to know that you don't have to be prepared or have everything ready to go to move forward. Sometimes it just, it has to happen in its own way and in its own time. And we just, we don't always have the answer for it. Mm, that's good. I have nothing else. Josh, anything? Yeah, I don't either. I don't think we have any announcements this week. Besides, we're getting close to Emily taking a break. I suppose we should start That's true. teasing this. Yeah. Is that, um, Emily, when your precious baby girl arrives, you are going to be taking a break from the podcast. I am. But Josh and I have a plan. And what we're going to do is, I'm sure people have been noticing you know, the promos for our sister shows on the Highline Network. What we're going to do, um, starting in a few weeks, is have other Highline podcast hosts fill Emily's spot for a number of weeks while she's on maternity leave. So, And there are some great topics that they want to discuss. So it'll be, it'll be a joy to listen to it. Oh, yeah. You get to be a listener to Ravel without having recorded yeah. one. Yeah. And then when I come back, I'm just going to tear everything apart. No, just kidding. <laughs> Please do. That sounds about right. That's how I know you to be in the world. <laughs> so I guess that's the main announcement. Um, yeah. Emily, do you have a benediction for us today? I think I might. Whether it's mind to heart, heart to mind, or somewhere in between, we are raveling out what it means to be present and to be experiencing life as Christians and wanting to know more about how we can be present and active in the work of God and God's work in us. Sometimes it takes time, sometimes it's out of our hands, but just know that we are on this beautiful journey together. Thank you.
Hello, and welcome to No Normal People. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dixie Lee. The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders. Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called sonder, and this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire sonder in yours. No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast, and in Montana. Highline Media Network, normal people in normal places.